You're listening to The Making Of, a podcast by the band Gates. In this episode, we'll chronicle the creation of You Are All You Have Left to Fear, originally released independently on May 29th, 2012, and subsequently re-released by Pure Noise Records on October 22nd, 2013. You will hear various demos, rehearsal recordings, and stems as we discuss how the album was written and recorded. My name is Kevin. I am the singer and guitarist in Gates. My name is Ethan. I play guitar in Gates. My name is Dan. I play guitar in Gates. My name is Mike. I play bass in Gates. My name is Dan. I play drums in Gates. We put out Sun in January of 2011. We were already demoing in February of 2011. So we went right into writing Fear directly after Sun. The release for Sun went pretty well. The reception was good and we just had a full set with that album and we just wanted more songs. I remember distinctly like having a direction where we wanted to do something that contrasted Sun. We were just kind of collecting riffs. Like we had like this key, this tempo, and just kind of doing like trial and error, piecing together and seeing what works. We wrote the song Like This You Mean in the basement in New Brunswick together. And I remember thinking we were really on to something awesome with that. Originally, it was jammed on in like a previous group of guys. That riff I remember coming up with, the time signature switch was basically because the looping pedal couldn't go that long. And I was like, whoa, that sounds kind of cool, like where how it resets there. So we were touching on dynamics that we really didn't go for on, on Sun. And yeah, it was just kind of like an interesting part and it ended up making the cut. We were living together at this point, me, Mike, and Dan. So it was like we were hearing what everybody was writing in real time. A few of us would sit down or a riff would catch somebody's ear from across the house and you'd just be like, oh, that's dope. And then you work on that one riff. So it was a way more relaxed environment to just kind of churn riffs out. There seemed to be a snowball effect of you guys living together that was mostly positive because there was a lot of stuff being created. It was kind of an incubator type of a feeling. Stylistically, there was a lot of experimentation with like compound type signatures. More aggressive dynamics. that time, that's kind of just the direction we ended up going in. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I think you guys started really like just writing songs and they were being finished. And I was getting very stressed out about not necessarily being able to steer where they were going while they were being created. Cast in the pattern, I remember just being so frustrated. I thought the ending of it was so good. I felt like the chord part was cool, but like we could just play that other part in the beginning and I'd actually be able to come up with like a pretty cool chorus for it. (laughs) 
what even is that time signature? Like a measure of seven, six, eight, and like a five or something? I don't even know what it is off the top of my head. I just know the muscle memory of it. It's one of those parts, but it's so cool. Like that combined with the vocals that Kevin came up with on that. Basically, I'm sitting here with the song and I have to come up with a melody that works in two different time signatures and lyrics that can be cut down and made to fit. And then, you know, the song ends up being about not fitting in. Like, it's legitimately a lyric about how I can't fit my lyrics into the song. I was that frustrated at at that point in time. That was definitely a moment of realization for me where it was like, okay, I kind of see why he might be getting a little (laughs) frustrated. It was definitely in the middle of the writing process. My grandfather had esophageal cancer. Pretty much knew that he had a few days left. So I booked a ticket to fly down to Texas to spend time with my family. Got a phone call boarding the plane that he had passed away. He gave me my... My first guitar, a lot of my interest in music came from him. The day I arrived, I grabbed one of his Martin acoustics. I wrote it on their front porch and I remember going in and playing it for my family. It was probably one of the more touching musical experiences that I've ever had. So when we went to record Cast in the Pattern, I knew that I wanted it for sonic quality, but I also wanted it just for me personally, emotionally to have that in the track. of your demos feature a similar layering. I know King agrees with me on this, is that there's always like an Ethan demo sound. The Kooser production quality. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that was kind of bringing that in. By October of 2011, we had completed writing the music for Fear. That basically left me alone to finish the lyrics, the melodies, to engineer, and then finally mix the EP. Sometime during that process, we managed to book a tour in the UK for March and April of 2012. And we decided it would be cool to promote that new release during that tour. So that pretty much gave us a deadline and we set it for May 29th of 2012. I mean, I remember sitting at the time at a desk job and I was spending more time out of my nine hour shift on the internet trying to figure out our visas, found places to stay before we even left the country. It was super exciting. Well, I think by that time, everyone else's job for this EP had been completed. This was the first instance for me of running into a wall. Nothing was really going the way I wanted it to go. It kind of culminated in the mixing. My leg went numb for months because I was so stressed out because I couldn't get the mixes right. Some of you guys were coming together as this really tight unit. Mike and Dan, you guys went to Utah to take photos for the cover of the EP. I basically just was looking up 
interesting looking locations that we could go and visit. And yeah, I came across the Bonneville Salt Flats. We figured out if we flew into Salt Lake City, we can drive out on I-80 and it's just right off of the highway. So we just did it. Originally, the cover for The Sun Will Rise, that was a location that Mike shot on his own. That was a photo that I took while skiing in Vermont. It was one of those things like I had my camera on me as I'm riding a snowboard and I, I took two or three pictures and one ended up being the cover. We added the illustration over it and it had a certain look, a certain vibe. And going back to the idea of this EP contrasting that one, that informed the art direction for Fear. We had like the very dark color scheme. Thought it was like a really nice contrast. For the cover photo, I think we went out really early in the morning, like 2 or 3 a.m. and just we're driving in pitch black. The image that's the cover is right around sunrise. We wanted to go somewhere where we could get a lot of images so that we could have a whole campaign of different locations. We actually had so much visual content that we were able to not only use it for videos and promo material for this album, but even like later on, we were still using some of those assets. Fear kind of informed the process for everything that came after. Just seeing something like that and being like, this is incredible, this is so next level, and just kind of feeling like I wasn't rising up to the occasion. I sent Kim Rosen an email who mastered the first pass of Fear saying, I'm basically giving up on the mixes. This is as good as they're going to get. Here they are. Master them. And at this point, we had announced a release date of May 29th. We sent the record to her on May 13th. On May 22nd, I followed up with her and I was like, we're going to need this record. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be this guy. I know how it is to get this kind of an email, but like we posted online that this record's coming out and we don't have it. Like, it's literally not finished. So <laughs> she did a pass and was basically like, it doesn't sound good. It's very dark and murky and, and the, the vocals are too low. She actually did, I think, three passes of it in like four days and sent us on May 25th the master copy CDR. And that day that we got it was May 29th. I just remember getting the files, entering like the song titles and then uploading them online like instantly. <laughs> like as soon as they were done, I was like, all right, cool. Up, up. <laughs> Don't scratch it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was kind of the trajectory of the whole time. Like, it was just like, go, go, go. We did like a limited run of letterpress CDs. I mean, that's like tons of work. So like that was going on at the same time. Yeah, all the CDs that we sold are just burned copies from my MacBook. Hundreds of times putting those CDs in and burning them. We were all gluing CDs in the living room at uh, Madison Ave. We put that out on May 29th of 2012. After that push of the record and that like kind of frantic release of it and creation of it, all of a sudden it felt like crickets as far as things to do after that. We kind of hit that plateau of we were so DIY that we had nothing else coming up. We could just like do another self-booked US tour, but I think we wanted to just kind of step it up from there. The next year is kind of really weird because we put fear out and it was done, but it wasn't done. 
it ended up being re-released over a year later. What happened in that year was a lot of what we were aiming to do ultimately with the release. The first big change came about when Nate Gluck started helping us out. Nate was always around. He was always hanging out at shows that we were playing and stuff. At first, I think he was just kind of offering us advice. Every other week, we were getting together and just going out to dinner, talking about you know, what the band was doing, how to best approach certain scenarios. Nate started introducing us to some more avenues. He introduced us to Phil Battiato, who was our first booking agent. And I remember sitting in the agency group. You're surrounded by your friends and people from Jersey, so you know you're in good hands. Okay, you're looking at your new booking agent, and he's asking you, like, best case scenario, what is your perfect three-band bill? You're saying, like, the three bands that you love the most, so then you have this, like, inkling in the back of your mind that, like, this is possible. Our first email with Jake Brown from Pure Noise was on April 16th of 2012. He emailed us before Fear actually was released. He heard about us from the American scene who we met on our first U.S. tour, and they were the reason Jake actually signed us to Pure Noise. You kind of get into this world that we didn't think we kind of needed, but then we were in it nonetheless. These people were definitely helping us get what we wanted, and they were working hard to help us push forward as a band and get to more people. During that process, we were in the middle of still writing a full-length record. The idea came up that we had this EP. He gave us options. He was like, hey, we can re-release it as is. I'd be willing to do that. You know, it might reach a few more heads. Or we could get it remixed. And we were like, we're going to record a song and we're going to get the album remixed. We're talking about bonus material. We have all these ideas we're kind of saving for this next release we want to do. So we had to come up with something from scratch. Skyline was a track that I had some sort of demo for. That I remember being like, you know, we could do this. This would be cool. This would be a cool little kind of postlude to this album that already existed. It didn't feel disjointed because it felt like it needed an album to be attached to. Probably be the only way that that song would ever be made because it felt like the right place for it. I'm happy we had the opportunity to record Skyline and Corey from Vasudeva's basement. Vasudeva has always been like really tight friends with us and it was just cool having them around for the process, I think. Corey was definitely an integral part of that whole process, I mean, you can even see in the video, there's times where he's manning the board. One of my favorite melodies that I toss on to the album was on Skyline. Ethan was recording first and he had like all these awesome parts for Skyline. I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm about to lay down. Like I'm all the way in the back in Corey's basement, just basically trying to come up with anything. And I had an idea right then and there. I think that was kind of what made the process exciting. For the first time you go into a recording scenario and it's like, all right, come up with something. I didn't even realize that's how you came up with that guitar part. Me either. That's one of my favorite riffs that you've ever written. It's one of those uh, riffs, and unfortunately, one of Ethan's riffs is uh, To Those Who Fell. I kind of wish I never wrote that riff. When Ethan first demoed to those who fell, Mike, he was playing the demo in his room and I heard it from a distance and I'm like, what is that melody? Like, that is so cool. It's basically exactly what Ethan wrote. 
I think we messed around with playing it different ways. And then we were just like, nah, man, this it sounds so cool the way he re recorded it. Let's just play it just like that. And then it was awesome. It sounded great. And we were like, it should go into another song. And that's where the, the adventure began on creating To Those Who Carry On. The amount of iterations that that track went through. It's astounding to listen to how many different parts, <laughs> how many different versions. I was chopping stuff up in Pro Tools every, after every session, mashing up random parts here and there. Ethan was always trying to come up with the next part for it. trying to follow up what would become like the coolest riff I could ever write. <laughs> that song just has like riffs for days. I love it. It's not the easiest song to perform, but it's an awesome feeling when you nail it. The second verse of To Those Who Carry On is one of the hardest things for me to play. You play it once clean and then you have to hit some pedals and then you play it a little dirty and then you have to turn all your pedals off for the part that follows. And then the 5-4 part comes in where we're all playing this lead. And then we do the whole thing again. And it's like, you remember that one part we played? Well, we're going to play it a higher octave now. <laughs> an onslaught. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> that song is the perfect image of we could do this, but it's at the top end of our abilities. It's the quintessential you wrote a song sitting down. <laughs> yep. Despite me personally thinking I didn't succeed at the first mix, we were also kind of weary of redoing something that already existed. Jake from Pure Noise had a few suggestions for mixing engineers. We had a short list of people we wanted to approach, but I had met Mike Watts earlier in the year, and on top of being a huge fan of his previous work, he was hands down the most enthusiastic person about wanting to work with our band. I know like one of Dan and I's favorite records is As Hall as Lions record, which is the pinnacle of great recording in our eyes, especially at that time. Yeah, I remember there was that list of artists that he worked with. SD's Burn. I know Mike was really into junior varsity. As a mixing engineer myself, he was one of the number one people that I looked up to. And to have met him and for him to be like, I want to work with your band, it mattered to me. I can go have this guy that I idolize remix this thing and tell me where I went wrong. And that's exactly what he did. I think he mixed to those who fell into those carry on first yeah he picked the hardest ones yeah and i i listened to it and was like no notes and, 
I remember it being everything I wanted it to be the first time we did it. It just felt like it was right. Once we heard like the remixed versions, one thing I specifically remember was like this, you mean the first verse, my guitar part was basically inaudible on the original. And then when we listened to Mike Watts' mix, I remember everyone laughing because they're like, wait, that part was there? Like, I've never heard this before. I remember going with Watts and he's just like, well, this guitar part should be heard the most. Dan King's part where it was like, I thought my part was the coolest. Mike Watts is like, this is what's important in this part. I feel like that really set the course for the years to follow. I started viewing things very different. And I think we were more focused on like, what is the actual part after working with them through the remix? I think in general that we just benefited from having an outsider's perspective because that was really the first time we've ever had that, where it wasn't a member of the band mixing it. It was just this guy who's just mixing is what he does. And then he just went in and objectively formed it into what it became. Yeah, and he became a collaborator of ours for the next two records after that. You Are All You Have Left to Fear, to me, represents growth, both personally and as a band. I learned that it wasn't all on me to succeed and make these things great. I was surrounded by a group of talented musicians, of friends that were going to help us get it to where we wanted it to be. Fear led us to so many great things, and I can't help but enjoy listening back to that final completed version and feel like, although the road there was pretty winding, that it did end up getting to a place where I think it was really awesome in the end. Listening to it today, you just kind of get like flashbacks of like coming up with all these parts and iterations and like constantly editing and drafting. And it just felt very like Gates to me. It's the progression that we needed to move to where we are now. Just listening back, it kind of just shows how far we've come in terms of writing songs together. Yeah, it's just like a photograph of that era. Every time I go to listen back to it, I'm very impressed. I kind of laugh at it a little bit because it's so over the top. Because I was a part of it, it gives me this certain emotion that no other record of ours does. I think because it's kind of a reflection of the time, us growing. It was definitely an educational process as a musician that I don't think could have been had any other way than having gone through writing and recording and remixing that EP. It was ultimately a logical step for us to take as a band and you know, some of the things worked out better than others, but I think it was, we had to go through that process in order to continue on the path that we did take. What about you, Danny? You haven't said a word the whole time. I think that it was, it was the record that we made after our first record. (laughs) (laughs) It was our second record. (laughs) Copy that. That could have been the whole podcast. (laughs) You Are All You Have Left to Fear is available for listening on all major streaming services. 
photos, videos, artwork, and more are available at youareallyouhaveleftofear.com. For information on upcoming tour dates, music releases, and more, visit gatesnj.com and subscribe to our email list or follow us on Instagram at gatesmusic. This podcast was produced, edited, and mixed by Kevin Dye. Thank you for listening. Thank you.